October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So it's a great time to talk about breast health, what's normal, what's not, and what we can do to take care of our breasts all year long, not just during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Lindsay Gold, a breast surgeon who not only is a practicing private practice medical doctor, but also shares her insights in the Breast of Everything podcast and website. She is a fellowship trained breast surgeon, has worked as the clinical director of the Michigan Center for Breast Health, the director of the Comprehensive Breast Center, Genesis Regional Medical Center, and has been in private practice since 2006. She is involved in the American Society of Breast Surgeons and is certified in breast ultrasound. Dr. Gold is also an assistant professor of surgery at Wayne State University School of Medicine and Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. She is actively involved in clinical research and is an investigator and participant in a number of clinical trials under the oversight of the National Cancer Institute. And she's also one of the hosts of the Breast of Everything podcast, which you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. Be sure to check out the episode that I was recently a guest on. Let's get started. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Gold. I am so excited you're here to talk with me today. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Melissa, thank you so much for having me. I am super excited about this. Hello, listeners. My name is Lindsay Gold. I am a breast surgical oncologist. So for the most part, we treat surgically both benign and malignant diseases of the breast. My background is just I did a general surgery residency followed by a breast surgery fellowship, and I have been in private practice for about 17 years. So I feel old. (laughs) No, no, God, no. Um, Like if you add up my first career to my second career where we're on beyond 25 years now. Yeah. Yes. A couple lives. It's good. So what was it that brought you to be interested in medicine? Well, truth be told, my dad is a retired ear, nose and throat surgeon, and I don't really remember having another choice. So it just was. (laughs) 
And then, and it was fine. I just didn't really question it. And I didn't explore any other, you know, options or opportunities. And here we are. And surgery is just fun for people who go through medicine, like, right, you you see it and you're like, oh, that's for me. And originally I was going to go into vascular surgery, but Mm -hmm. then I had an attending who talked me out of it. And another mentor who said, I think you should go into breast surgery. And that was pretty much in breast surgery's infancy in the early 2000s. So I said, well, I I like caring for women and there's not a lot of us. So cool. And here we are. Yeah. So breast surgery has changed quite a bit in recent years. My grandmother, my dad's mom had breast cancer, you know, back in the 70s. And so you know, the types of surgeries that they did then were, you know, radical, very radical. And that was the only choice, essentially. Mm -hmm. I always tell the residents and fellows, med students, what they did back then was of historic interest only. And no practicing surgeon today would like ever do something like that. And even worse, back in the day when your grandma had surgery, you know, we didn't have the technology that we had. Women didn't know what their lump was before they went to the operating room. So you signed a surgical consent that said, you know, excisional biopsy, possible mastectomy. And so in the end, you didn't know if you were waking up with a breast or not. Now, that would be medical malpractice today. And even in my 17 years, that was never done. But can you imagine how horrible that would be? for, you know, any person, but particularly like a young person, maybe a breastfeeding person. Uh, I just can't imagine what it was like. So women are awesome. (laughs) I think, you know, the, the advances in science are so cool. And hopefully, you know, the goal is to eliminate or, or minimize the invasive procedures. Consent is a big thing now that wasn't, doesn't sound like it was fully in place back then. Um, But I I do know, you know, in some ways it can actually sort of not backfire, but go the other way, you know, where I know with mammogram technology, for example, it's gotten so, so good that sometimes it's picking up on things that aren't necessarily anything to be concerned about. Exactly. And over-treatment is something we talk about in the breast surgery community because, Correct. There's no sense in finding a disease that's not going to harm you because then you initiate treatment and that causes harm, you know. And there have been wonderful advances, surgical oncology, medical oncology, radiation. And by and large, we do less today than we did a while back. I always joke that breast surgeons are constantly trying, we're constantly trying to put ourselves out of business because (laughs) everything we do is de escalation of care. But I would say just like the medical community is, you know, you are a part of in general, as far as cancer is concerned, we've not really been very good at investigating the preventive aspect or talking about the preventive aspect. We're really good with treatment. We're really good with diagnostics. We are not at all good talking about prevention. And to be honest, how else are you going to stop disease? You got to stop it before it starts. But it's not its not something we talk about. Yeah, I joke all the time with my clients that my goal is for, I mean, it's not even a joke. It's my goal is for them to not need me anymore. You know, I want them to get to the point where where they feel confident making their own choices. I'm not 
I'm not Weight Watchers. You don't have to pay me month after month after month to continue seeing results, you know? Right. Yes, that is that is the sign of a good practitioner, a good clinician. Yeah. Yeah. So funny enough, my background is actually working in pharmaceutical advertising in targeted oncology drugs. So, you know, back in the early 2000s, I was working on the breast cancer launch for Avastin Global. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was sort of one of the, you know, monoclonal antibodies and the VEGF inhibitors. And then we yep. were getting, you know, the HER2 treatments. And now it's like you could take a pill and block those pathways. And it's getting more and more specific, the, you know, genetic testing. So is that part that I assume that's part of what you're doing when you're sending tissue to pathology and Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting. In the early 2000s, we barely knew about the HER2 protein. Mm -hmm. And now we're on like, you know, sixth generation drugs. Right. And so and so, you know, about the pharmacy and all of its issues, it's doing a good job. They're not motivated for prevention because it wouldn't do anything (laughs) for their stockholders. But in the end, you still always need to have effective treatments. But we could reach a good balance. So yeah, yeah, there's lots, lots of really, really effective drug therapy. So it's exciting for people. Yeah, definitely. You know, with the customized therapies, you know, no matter most of the cancer areas, most of the most common cancers, at least I I was working mostly in non-small cell lung cancer. So there was a lot of development there during that time as well. What are some of the conditions that you treat? Obviously, breast cancer is a large part of what you work with. What are some other conditions that might lead someone to see a breast surgeon? Yeah, probably the benign disease is even a larger part of a practice. We're in a community setting, so I I'm not working in a quote unquote cancer center, right? If you're surgical oncologist working at Memorial Sloan Kettering, Dana Farber, MD Anderson, you don't see a ton of benign disease. But on the community level, we see a lot of benign stuff. Most of it is non-operative, right? We we don't operate on a lot of non-cancer stuff. Sometimes young younger women will get lumps that are painful, occasionally some diagnostic things, but by and large, we try not to operate on people for benign things. So the most one of the most common complaints we see is breast pain. I always say it's the bane of my existence because to be honest, there's like no good known cause. We assume, we make the assumption that it's primarily estrogen driven just because of the nature of breast tissue and the fact that it's super common in premenopausal women or postmenopausal women on hormone replacement. But you know, grandma, you know, in her late seventies who hasn't menstruated in, you know, two or three decades, she doesn't come in usually complaining of breast pain unless maybe she has an ill-fitting bra. Do we mm. all we all have an ill-fitting bra? You know, <laughs> bras are hard. So breast pain is really a big one. And kind of the bottom line with breast pain is most people just want to know that they don't have cancer. And the pain otherwise is self-limiting, right? So we do our appropriate workup, we provide a lot of reassurance to people. We might see breast abscesses, right? So that also is not fun because no people are in pain. There's different types of abscesses, but probably 
to anybody who's been pregnant, you would know about mastitis or lactational abscess, right? So we see a lot of that. And we see a lot of, as a result of smoking, smoking's a no, right? Like it's a no, a no, and then a no. (laughs) There's no health benefit to smoking, (laughs) like at all. So smoking is bad. It causes subareolar breast abscesses. It's just bad. And sometimes I say those are worse than cancer because at least we can cure cancer. Those type of abscesses driven by smoking, they just relapse, they're chronic. It's not good. You don't want to go there. And nipple piercing. I cannot be a fan of the nipple piercing because of course I only see the complications of it. I'm sure there's millions of women who love their nipple piercings. Good for you until it gets infected and then it's a hot mess. So do the abscesses caused by smoking go back to your first career choice, which was vascular surgeon? Is it because of the changes to the vasculature that happen? Not necessarily because it tends to be in younger people. So they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily have vascular disease. What we think the pathophysiology is, is like microscopic plugging of the ends of the milk ducts with like skin cells, basically, right? And you get sort of a backup, if you will, of fluid, right? When there's no milk in the milk ducts, there's fluid and it has to evaporate, come out. It'll seep through the walls of the milk ducts. We think that maybe the nicotine will damage the walls of the lactiferous ducts that are right behind the nipple and it weakens them, right? And then the end gets plugged and the fluid seeps out and it causes this sort of low level of chronic inflammation that eventually turns into an abscess. And, you know, chronic low levels of inflammation is good for nobody, (laughs) like anywhere in the body, right? So yeah, that's what I work with, you know, almost primarily. It's right up there with blood sugar imbalances when it comes to root causes of things going wrong. Elsewhere. Right. Elsewhere. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so that's what we think. It's sort of the going theory on how it happens, but it's very rare to see an abscess involving the nipple and the areola in either a non-smoker or somebody who hasn't pierced their nipple or somebody who hasn't had trauma. There are some less common things like idiopathic granulomatous mastitis and that can mimic abscesses, but but the true like bacterial abscess, number one in smokers. So normally I don't beat people over the head to quit smoking because like by the time they see me, I'm the 800th provider who has told them to stop smoking. It's like not news to them. But that's the only time I really am like, ah, I beg you to stop. I tell them, well, if it was easy, everybody would quit. But don't quit quitting. (laughs) Yeah, if you look at some of those old cigarette ads from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, they actually were promoting it as healthy. You know, the healthier option or the filtered is better for you and less coughing and throat irritation with our brand versus the other guys. And it's just really scary. It is scary. And you and I are around the same age. So for our younger listeners, they do not remember when smoking was allowed in both restaurants and on airplanes. Remember back in the day, there was a smoking section on the airplane, which is just the most absurd thing you could really ever think of. And um, yeah. Not to mention hospitals. And, <laughs> not to um, mention. 
hospitals, bars when I first was, I mean, you know, when I was first in New York City, I remember I would have to come home and shower after going out with friends. The smell was just in my hair and I couldn't get it out, you know? So it's like a 2 a.m. shower before bed. Nights yes. And my actually my very first job, which was in corporate, you know, publishing, there were still some, you know, old famed editors who would keep their door shut and just smoke all day. And you would have to fight your way through the cloud of smoke to bring them the manuscripts. And yeah, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. I'd like to think that anybody listening to your, you know, excellent podcast would not be smokers because they're interested in their own health, promoting their own health. But yeah, you, never know. you know, I, th- I think nicotine for sure, you know, vaping is still, yeah. considered, you know, socially more acceptable these days. True. Smoking cannabis, you know, I'm not a, right. Not, not going to say don't use cannabis but don't smoke it you know right. any right. other way to get it in your body just yeah there's lots lots and lots of better ways to do it yeah so many right. better ways of doing anything than smoking it I mean and that goes for cooking your meat too you know like if you're cooking meat, <laughs> yep. you don't want to char it smoke is, is yeah. beneficial for us in any way yeah funny mm-hmm. yeah, yeah so well how would you know, a condition, say a woman came to you and was struggling with breast pain, you know, how, how would you determine what was going on if that was an abscess or if it was something else that was causing it? The good old fashioned history and physical exam, which Mm -hmm. sometimes feels like it's gone to the wayside, but truly history and physical exam. Most of the time we need to decide, is their pain cyclic, right? Mm -hmm. With their cycles even if they're not actually having cycles, maybe they have an IUD, but we ask them to keep a pain diary if they haven't noted if the pain is cyclic or not cyclic. If it's cyclic, you know, we kind of put it into the probably estrogen, progesterone related. And then to be honest, I tell them that they are most likely to figure out what causes the pain before I am. They have to keep a diary of what they eat. They have to keep a diary of what they do because they'll kind of figure it out before I will because it's something that's going on we either don't know or probably that you're doing. So not, you know, intentionally, of course. So pain diary, activity diary, food diary, very good way of figuring out cyclic pain. Non-cyclic pain, so either you know, not associated with a menstrual cycle or in, you know, postmenopausal women who aren't having cycles, we always first rule out the bad stuff like cancer. But I'm going to say that the problem with cancer in general, all cancers, not just breast, is that it's not painful. I mean, if it was painful, people would go to their providers early and then you would find it early. The problem with cancer, not painful. Now, you might meet somebody who said, I had a breast pain and then I had, and this, my cancer was diagnosed. You know what? God works in mysterious ways. He or she probably sent you the pain, which made you aware of your breast, which I incidentally found the cancer. But basically it's, so as soon as we rule out the bad stuff, which really only is cancer, then we can work on what the other issues are. An abscess, 
that's a diagnosis you're going to generally make with your eyeballs. And that person has acute pain. Like if I'm not in your office right now, then I'm going to an urgent care center or an ER. So that's how we can determine that. We, we use our imaging secondary, again, mostly just to rule out an underlying, you know, occult cancer or something. But for the most part, clinical, clinical exam. The breast lives on top of two layers of muscle, which lives on top of your rib cage, which houses your lung. So of course, any of those underlying structures also can have issues that will just be in what I like to call the breast strike zone and mimic or manifest as breast pain, but it's not really breast pain. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the imaging a little bit. So I remember being told, you know, I was younger, I thought I felt kind of something funky. And, you know, I was probably in my early to mid 20s, you know, and they they said, well, we're not going to see anything on a mammogram because your breasts are too dense. So we're going to send you for the ultrasound. And, you know, what are what are some of the different imaging options and when are they used? Yeah. So mammogram, of course, is sort of the cornerstone of detecting breast cancer. Mammograms are good. They do the job we ask it to do. They are not perfect. They do miss maybe 10% of breast cancers. That's not a lot, but I mean, it's also not a little. So they are not perfect. They do use radiation, but a very, very, very low level of radiation. Same amount of radiation that you would get in the environment from flying from New York to LA. And we do not see an increased risk of breast cancer in female flight attendants, right? So so mammograms don't cause breast cancer, contrary to a lot of what is out there on the internet. They're very good. For the most part, breast ultrasound is most commonly used as a diagnostic tool, either like what you just described, to evaluate a clinical finding, usually a lump, and to evaluate an imaging finding, like something's abnormal on the mammogram, and we need to know, is it a cyst, fluid-filled sac, or is it a solid lesion? And that's what the ultrasound can tell us. More recently, we have been using breast ultrasound for screening purposes, and that does very well in women with dense breasts. I'm going to go ahead and guess that some of these more quote-unquote less radiation-filled, the more modern imaging where there's like stand, I'm sorry, I don't even remember what it's really called, but like the thermo, is it thermograph? Yeah, thermograms. Mm -hmm. That kind of stuff, is that the kind of stuff that's science not really quite there yet or? Yeah, the issue with thermograms is they've never really been put in a, you know, real study head to head with mammography. So could we say they're like far inferior? Not really. But in the end, there's really no advantage to them. You say, well, they don't use radiation, but the radiation, it's not a problem. Like maybe it's a problem for some people like emotionally or mentally, but it's not really a problem medically. So I'm not sure what problem it was trying to solve in the first place. But the real issue with thermography is once you identify an abnormality, you have no way of getting a tissue diagnosis. So if you're using this modality for screening and you find something, you know, that has no clinical exam finding, that's the purpose of a screening exam, then 
how am I going to ever find out what it is? I've got to then do a mammogram, do an ultrasound, do a breast MRI. So it's just really not possible that thermography would pick up things as early as potentially mammography, like precancer cells and stuff. I don't really try and talk people out of it because if you do it, then you've probably already made up your mind. Happy to work with you and figure out a way that works for both of us. But yeah, but chances are you're going to be going right back to the conventional doctor for the treatment and management. Yes, yes. It's so funny the things that that people choose to market with as messages. There's a an allergy pill. So, you know, Zyrtec is a pretty small little allergy pill. And, and currently there's an allergy pill running commercials saying it's half the size of Zyrtec. And I'm like, what? Never thought that Zyrtec was a problem. It's not like the like calcium, magnesium right. horse pills. It's like a tiny little pill. I don't know anyone who would have trouble swallowing it or complain no. it's large. So it's just so yeah. weird that, that it's like, that's their selling point is like, we're half yeah. Zyrtec. I'm like, so what? <laughs> so- yeah, I would not invest in that company. I feel like that's not a good idea because <laughs> you're right. It's not a problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. Funny. Hey there, quick announcement. If you've been listening for a while or following me on Instagram, you probably have heard me mention my signature program for PCOS, the PCOS Root Cause Roadmap. Well, I wanted to let you know that doors are going to be opening for a brief time again soon. If you're struggling with symptoms of PCOS like irregular cycles, lack of ovulation, fatigue, carb cravings and sugar cravings, acne and hair loss, weight that won't budge no matter what you do and trouble getting pregnant, did you know that all of those symptoms are being driven by the same root causes? So you could attempt to treat the symptoms individually like a lifelong game of whack-a-mole, or you could take an entirely different approach that addresses the upstream root causes, meaning you can improve all of your symptoms at once. Imagine yourself in just six weeks feeling confident that you know exactly what to eat for your PCOS which lifestyle changes will actually make a difference, and which supplements are best for your situation. Plus, you'll learn what tests you need for proper PCOS diagnosis, root cause identification, and monitoring your progress, how to interpret those tests, and what to do when they're not optimal. The PCOS Root Cause Roadmap is my proven and proprietary six-step method for PCOS success. And it's the exact same methods and protocols I use with my patients. It has everything you need for support, including hundreds of PCOS-friendly recipes and suggested meal plans, six exclusive PCOS yoga videos developed just for this program, and a private community where you can join over 700 previous course participants. And the best part, you get lifetime access to the course, so you can always go back and rewatch the modules whenever you want. Recently, we moved from having the doors to this program always open 
to an open close enrollment format so that we can better serve students as they're going through the program on the same timeline. So this October will be the last chance for you to enroll until 2023. We will have VIP spots available to add weekly group coaching and lab testing to your program, but those spots will be extremely limited. So if you know you wanna take control of your PCOS once and for all in just six weeks without giving up any of your favorite foods or tracking anything, be sure to get on the wait list at thehormonedietitian.com forward slash PCOS RCR dash wait list. We get started on October 17th and I can't wait to help you identify and address your root causes of PCOS. There will be special early bird pricing, but it will only be available to those on my email list. So again, you want to go to the hormonedietitian.com forward slash PCOS RCR hyphen wait list to be the first to know when doors are open and get access to the special early bird discount. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, so one of the other conditions that you see and work with is something called inverted nipples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what are those? So it's an any and not an outie is how I would explain it, right? So normally nipples, as most people think of them, are pointed or out or erect. So you have little muscle fibers in your nipple, right? And upon stimulation of any type, the nipple becomes erect. Some people just are born with different types of nipples that are not quite as projected as other people's. If you were naturally born with inverted nipples and that's the way God made you, then it's fine. It's like scarring of some of the ducks, tethering. It's totally normal. It's no big deal. You can still breastfeed as successfully as anybody else. And it's fine. What we really talk about with inverted nipples is something that did not start inverted but then became inverted over time because, of course, that is one of the signs of breast cancer. Not a common one, but definitely one we would not want to ignore, right? And most inverted nipples are not cancer, but I certainly wouldn't want anybody to ignore an inverted nipple, always get that checked out, right? Yeah, so... You know, cosmetically, if it were something that a woman had, you know, was born with, it was always like that for her, but, you know, she, she wanted to correct it or wasn't, you know, it wasn't something she was happy about herself. Is that something that's possible to do sort of a, a correction surgery? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. You can correct inverted nipples and you can do it pretty easily right in the office. It's really a simple procedure. Takes a little local It's really no big deal. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know that. My plastic surgery colleagues are wonderful and we work with them all the time. They can do it as well. So obviously there's more than one group of us that can do it. They don't, uh, your insurance oftentimes won't pay for it if it's done by plastic surgeon or it's considered cosmetic. So sometimes you have a better chance of getting it covered if it's with us, but neither here nor there. We both do the same thing. And it's, if it bothers somebody from an aesthetic standpoint, yeah, absolutely. You can fix it in an easy way. Sounds like it's a about as invasive as a nipple piercing. <laughs> I think a nipple piercing is worse. <laughs> but yes, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably. There are some of yeah. those other other signs. But really, you know, what I'm what I'm picking up on here is like, you know, things that are are slightly different or unusual that have been that way forever generally not a problem but if you notice something different that's sudden like dimpling mm-hmm. or bleeding or are there any of those mm-hmm. other kind of things where it's like okay if this happens you need to go see your doctor right away right and so there are some subtle signs of breast cancer and first and foremost you have to look at your boobs mm-hmm. to find them. So I think some of the time that's the issue. People don't always look at them. You know, you take a glance when you get out of the shower, you're not like staring at them. But in the end, take a good look every now and then. And maybe even raise your arms above your head or put your hands on your hips because that's the only way you're going to actually find those subtle signs like dimpling, like you imagined, right? So if you put your arms above your head like a ballerina and on the underside of one breast, the skin is pulling in and on the other side, it's not, that's probably a problem because the issue with cancer, right, is it causes a lot of this, this sort of scarring where it pulls the tissue in, just like when you develop a cancer in the, behind the nipple, it's pulling the nipple tethering it down. And so, for example, back to the inverted nipples, if the nipple is inverted, but you can stimulate it very easy and it everts or becomes an Audi again, it's not a problem, right? If you're trying to stimulate it and it's not going anywhere, then something is tethering it down. And we have to look into that. But yes, sometimes one of the other signs, subtle signs of breast cancer could be sort of a breast enlargement, right? Generally speaking, if we're gaining weight or, you know, breastfeeding and our breasts, they're paired organs. So usually they will age at the same rate. They will grow at the same rate. That's not true hundred percent of the time, but it is true most of the time. So if you notice a subtle cup size increase in one breast, eh, that we might want to check out coupled with maybe a heaviness of the breast, right? I always say to ladies, if you have not breastfed in years, but you've got one breast that feels like it's full, like with milk, that is, we need to look at that. It's not a good sign, generally. Don't Google red breast. You will have yourself out of here. (laughs) It's not good. But of course, inflammatory breast cancer is one of our more aggressive types of breast cancer. It still has very good survival rates these days with our new treatments. But inflammatory breast cancer is one of the 1% cancers where its problem is it is a clinical diagnosis. You look at the breast and say, hmm, that's inflammatory breast cancer. So that's an enlarged breast. It's a red breast where the whole breast sort of has a pinkish reddish hue. Sometimes it's purplish and sometimes the skin looks thickened. We say like an orange peel, you know, but again, when you look at it, it's grossly different from the other side. So anything that's on one side and not on the other ought to raise a little bit of concern. Except (laughs) I hear a lot. I think, and I think this is the way for most women is that the breasts are slightly different sizes for most women. Yeah, exactly. Like if it's always been that way, it's normal. Always been that way. Yeah. And I'm talking a dramatic, notable change in size of the breast. Like one breast is 
doesn't fit in the bra cup anymore. It's just falling out. You know, these things are dramatic such that when I see it in the office, I know what it is right away. It's because it's it's not subtle. Yeah. So it might you're... be subtle to you if you live in your body, but it's not subtle to those of us who've never seen your breasts before. So, yeah. What about veins? Like veiny breasts? Yeah, veiny breasts. Well, other than being unattractive, perhaps, to maybe a person thinks they're unattractive, the veins generally aren't a problem. There is one thing that can happen with veins in the breast. We call it Mondor's thrombophlebitis, but basically it is inflammation of the superficial veins in the breast that causes, you know, pain and discomfort, sometimes a ropey or mass-like feeling in the breast. It's totally self-limited. It goes away, you know, with ice and anti-inflammatories and stuff like that. It, It has no significant indication for the most part. It's kind of uncommon and most people don't really need, there's nothing operative that we need to do about it. But yeah, veins can become engorged for a whole host of reasons. But other than unattractive, it's not really, it's not a huge problem. Just having veins is just, you're just a person who has blood in your body, which is normal. All good. <laughs> and yep, good. Yep, <laughs> yeah. Blood, yep. blood flow. Are people yeah. still wearing bras post-COVID? Have people gone back to yeah. bras? I'm, I haven't, I'm not going back to real pants either. Like it's just. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I mean, I think they are. There's, I think the older we are, the less likely we are to wear bras. I, I just, you know, there's a lot of older ladies that are just free to be and they're great. I don't know if I could go without a bra. That would be, that would be a little tough. But, you know, if you can do you, then I'm jealous if you can be free. (laughs) No, I'm just, you know, I remember giving my mom so much crap when I was younger about (laughs) not wearing underwires. I'm like, mom, why are you wearing these like stretchy like and she's like, because they're comfortable. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. Granny bras. Yeah, you know, and fast forward 20 years and I'm like, I don't think I even own an underwire anymore. Uh, I do not. Are underwires bad for breast health? They are not bad for breast health. I just personally think they're uncomfortable, but that's just me. So yeah, no. So they're totally fine to wear. Just there's so many other good bras that don't have underwire. I don't know why you would need an underwire. Yeah. Do you have a favorite bra brand or do you sell bras on your on your website? So yes, we do. Thebreastofeverything.org which is just a compilation of all things breast, right? Anything that you could need that think of associated with breast is available to you. Different bras are good for different things and different times in your life. And that was sort of how the breast of everything was born, which was that there are different needs. Everybody has different breast health needs throughout from the time you grow them to the time they look like a rock in a sock, like a little rock in the bottom of a tube sock. (laughs) That's how we all end. So yeah, so everybody's got some different needs. You know, sometimes the little kids need some training bras. And then you get to the, I only want to buy Victoria's Secret type bras because my breasts stand up on their own and I don't really need a bra, but you know, I got to wear something cute and fun. And then there's the maternity bras, Mm -hmm. right? And then there are the athletic or the sports bras. Mm -hmm. There's the post-surgical bras. If you are having any type of breast surgery, then you get into the mastectomy bras, right? Bras with a boob in it. 
And that's good for people who've lost a breast or for people in the transgender community. So lots of people have different breast needs. I like the bras that don't fall off your shoulder strip. So I always say there's nothing worse than starting a four hour surgery and your bra strap fell off your shoulder and nobody can put it up for you. And you can't put it up because you're sterile. It's like the worst. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. I totally not sponsored in any way, but I've recently been very hooked on Spanx makes one that has like really thick elastic straps that don't go anywhere. And exactly no underwire lifts the girls up. Like everything feels nice and secure. That's my, my current favorite. Yeah. And Spanx, you know, they just make good everything. Mm-hmm. I don't, if Rachel Blakely wants to give me something <laughs> free as a result, then great, because I love everything Spanx. And that's their whole thing, right? Their, their whole point is to keep stuff in place and they do make a good bra. So yeah, I, oddly enough, I wear like the post-surgical bras that we have. They're a little, they're just the most comfortable, you know, they're not very sexy. You can't really wear a V-neck with them. So different bras for different outfits, you know, but yeah. And then it's a constant quest with the athletic bras. It's like, okay, this one I can wear if I'm just on the elliptical or the bike. But if I'm (laughs) going to jog, I need to wear this one. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. The jogging's tough. You know, I even have some ladies, particularly larger breasted, they have certain like golf bras. Because if I'm not a golfer, but like I can understand that boobs are in the way. Like they're just kind of in the way of your good swing. So you got to minimize them (laughs) to the best you can to get your best golf swing. Yeah, I've known women in marathon training who would wear two. They would wear a normal one and then one that would like zip up the front to kind of keep everything from shaking around. Exactly, exactly. It's it's not necessarily harmful for them to be bouncing around though, right? It's No, mm -mm, not harmful at all. It's just uncomfortable sometimes. So if you can do it and it's not uncomfortable... That's great. Those are messages that get spread out on Dr. Google land Mm -hmm. is, you know, don't wear a bra. It causes your breasts to sag early or you see the opposite where, you know, you have to wear a bra or your breasts. So like that, is that all just total Mm. bogus? Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Yep. It pretty much is. I mean, the only thing you can do from keeping your breasts from sagging is have surgery. I mean, (laughs) to put them back up where they belong. I mean, there are subtle things that people can do to take care of their skin, but it's the same thing as your face, you know? I mean, you cannot go through life and be 65 and have your face look like a 25-year-old. Even if you have surgery, there's just the process of aging and the breasts are subject to the same process. And it's just, the earlier you accept it, the less frustrated you will be in life. <laughs> That's what I say. Yeah, all of, you know, all of the things that support skin tissue and collagen and yep. fat and, you know, just structural things in your body. You know, yep. for, unfortunately, we we do try to fight that as we age with varying levels of success. But yes, you know, gravity always wins, right? Gravity always wins. Yep. <laughs> So you kind of mentioned a couple of tips already, you know, about prevention, things like don't smoke. What are some other general preventive care tips for breast health? 
you know, in general, anything that is good for your overall health is going to be good for your breast health, right? Statistically, we're all more likely to die of cardiovascular disease. So everybody should take care of their heart, right? And their general health and their blood sugar and all those things. So many ladies will ask after diagnosis, you know, is there an anti-cancer diet? Well, if there was, we'd all eat it. (laughs) And then none of us would have cancer. No, not specifically, but are there certain things that are better to do than others? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, and in moderation, right? The cleaner we can eat, the better, right? Does anybody really advise ultra-processed food? Probably not, right? So that that's good for really nobody. So the more fruits and vegetables that you can eat, the more natural foods you can eat. I say to the extent that you can pronounce everything in the ingredients that you eat, that's better. Again, it's not that easy to do, but if you needed something you know, if your cancer diagnosis is the motivation for you, great. But ideally, we do that all before somebody gets a cancer diagnosis. So if you can do that as a part of your just general health and wellness, your breasts will be happier for sure. Yeah, I talk about it a lot too, when it comes to, you know, fertility and hormones. It's the same things that are good for your fertility and your hormones are good for your general health. Like, would be pretty uh, weird of nature to make a vegetable that's good for your brain, but bad for your uterus, right? It's like totally not the way that it works. No, Um, it's not. You know, and I don't think, you know, especially with, with my clients and the people I work with, I don't think anyone's kidding themselves that a Snickers bar is, you know, health food or good for us. And it's not about an occasional Snickers bar. It's what your overall diet, of course, what what your overall day looks like, what your overall week looks like, what your overall looks like, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're all going to fall off the bandwagon. Nobody should ever beat themselves up about it. But Taco Bell every Friday is is just not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Twice a year. (laughs) Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always talk about because because we live relatively close to the seacoast here. So, mm-hmm. you know, I will have a fried clams plate, you know, or share a fried clams yes. plate as an appetizer once a year during the yep. summer. That's like, and that's a treat. You know, I think yep. we, we get we can get to into treating ourselves every day or treating ourselves every week or treating ourselves every meal. Right. Non-food treats. <laughs> Non-food treats. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Non-food treats. Yes. Mm -hmm. Why do we always assume it has to be food? Good point. Yep. I'm going to do a girlfriend of mine got me hooked on those foot peeling mask things. Oh, those are fun. Do a little like hair mask, feet mask. Yeah. Yep. Even buy a new lipstick, right? Like I feel like sometimes it's fun to get a new perfume. Or something like that. that's a good. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that non food treats. That is non- excellent advice. Non food treats because we all like to treat ourselves. Actually, lately my treat has been um, buying myself new plants. <laughs> oh, I like that one. Succulents or just uh, any no plant? garden perennials. I've oh. been thinking, I'm collecting perennials. I feel like there you, know, you go Pokemon. It's like I've got to get them all, you know, and and put them all out there. So yeah, that's good. My current current obsession. Let's talk about a success story of one of the patients that you've worked with recently. You know, the vast majority of women 
survive their breast cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Like four out of five, you know, I always say to die of, you know, Alzheimer's or some other thing that none of us want to get. They really do. Obviously, just one life lost is too many. And if that person was close to you, then I could tell you all the statistics on earth. It just doesn't matter, right? Because it hurts, period. Mm -hmm. So we should try and save all lives. But I mean, I would just tell you that the vast majority of people I see, they are going to do, they are going to do fine, right? And they're going to go to, I sometimes say they're going to go to get back into their old bad habits. (laughs) So people still smoke after their cancer diagnosis, but sometimes just the whole process is a wake up call for people. And that's nice to see, you know, I see somebody a six month follow up visit and they've taken it upon themselves. They've lost, you know, 25 pounds and they're super jazzed about getting into good health. From a surgical standpoint, sometimes we improve people's feeling or appearance of their breast, right? And then so they feel more confident in that way. And that's a plus as well. But for people to go on and live good quality of life, and like you say, never see me again, which I don't take personally, that's pretty rewarding. Yeah, that's really good. That That's so much more hopeful. I think, you know, the survival rates have gone up and up and the more, you know, customized treatments that are able to treat the person and, you know, their specific condition. And yeah, it's very individualized, very, 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 very individualized treatment now. So, you know, your breast cancer is not the same as your sister's is not the same as your neighbor's. That's what keeps us all on our toes, right? It's just rapid change in the field. I mean, I'd like to think that in my career time, we will have found a near cure or something, maybe some sort of way that you can use your own body to make a vaccine against an antibody if they don't already have a vaccine. Probably not. Maybe your own body's vaccine might be the way to do it. But I'd like to think that we have already made a significant impact in decreasing the death rate of breast cancer, but I hope that by the time I call myself elderly, almost nobody is dying from it unless it was neglected for some reason. Yeah, I think, you know, sort of going back to what you were saying, breast cancer is not a monolith, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think back in the olden days, it was treated like a monolith, like it's and we're looking for a cure for breast cancer. And little did we know, how many different variations there are and how many different treatment approaches. And so, you know, that's where we have to find cures multiple now. Yes, cures multiple. Exactly, exactly. And it's encouraging to me that, you know, things like functional medicine, lifestyle medicine, I would just say sort of the medical community in general are getting excited about prevention. Because again, like we talked about earlier, historically, We've not been good, but there seems to be this momentum going where more people are starting to talk about it. You know, we I don't know if we mentioned this before, but like, you know, there is no nutrition education in medical school. It's just flat out absurd. It's just absurd. So, I mean, I don't mind referring to dietitian. I would have to. I don't know anything about it, but that doesn't do any of us any good to, I mean, we should know at least a little basic something. So... That's encouraging to me that people are starting to 
pay a lot more attention. I think, I mean, I'm almost 50, so a much younger generation than me. I think they're probably going to be healthier than my generation. I've seen a few trends in that direction too. And I mean, I think it's partly because the young women, this, you know, in their early 20s or late teens now, their mothers are, are our age. So they grew up knowing a little bit more, feeling more comfortable talking about periods and breasts and health and just the moms who are our age are pretty quick to bring them into the doctor if they suspect that there's something wrong. As you had mentioned before, you know, we're starting to see more and more female doctors too, who not only understand the science and the diagnosis and the treatment, but also can empathize with what other women are going through. So I Mm -hmm. see that as, as encouraging. And I do hope, you know, things are moving in the right direction and continuing to move in the right direction. Yeah, I do think so. I'm encouraged by that. Definitely. Yeah. So I always like to ask, what's one thing that you would want people to take away from this episode? Well, I would want them to take away that if you're screened properly, if you take good care of yourself, the likelihood is that you will not die from breast cancer if you get it. And statistically speaking, you will not die. Can I guarantee that? No. Can I guarantee you don't die in a car accident on the way home? No, I cannot guarantee that either. But, you know, take good care of yourself and your body. You've only, you know, you've only got one, right? And I just don't think people should fear it like they do. I think you should say, well, this is an inconvenience. So are your uterine fibroids, (laughs) you know, so your dysfunctional bleeding. A lot of things are an inconvenience, right? So no, we can get this done and we can get it done in a manner that isn't too traumatic to you. So no need to fear it because sometimes that prevents people from getting screened and then that's a whole other mess. So that's what I would want people to know. Yeah, no, that's really important. And I think, you know, I definitely went through a phase of fearing it more when I was younger, you know, and based on family history, I went the opposite direction. I was like, I'm going to do everything within my power to not make this my pathway, you know, and that involves staying on top of the regular screenings and eating my broccoli and going for my, my hot girl walk, you know, (laughs) that's what the what the kids are calling it these days, go for my little hot girl walk. So I Oh, that's funny. I like that. What is mm-hmm. a hot girl walk? What do they it's define like, that as? I'm going on my stupid little hot girl walk for my stupid <laughs> little health. It's I, I don't know, it's a trend. I love I'm like, how could you hate a trend that has people out in the sun and nature walking, moving their that bodies? The, that's almost as good as non-food treats. Hot girl walk. I'm writing going it down. On a hot I'm, girl walk with my little podcast in my ears. Yes. Yes, that's yeah, the greatest. It's a good one. Hot uh, girl walks are good for everybody. Yes. So remind everyone of your website, where your product line is, and tell them about your podcast as well. Oh, yes, we have a lot of podcasts. We think it's pretty fun. Thebreastofeverything.com as well, or wherever you get your podcasts. We just try to have conversations like we did with you the other day and just inform about general women's health issues like like we're doing now. We talk about some breast cancer stuff, but also general health and just www.thebreastofeverything.org is our curated site for, you know, breast health and wellness. 
products and it's pretty cool. It's got all of our blogs as well. So just general information you can get there too. Thank you so much. I'm a sucker for good wordplay, you know, so, so <laughs> it's cute. great. Such a cute name. Great podcast. Like you just said, I was just on as well. So yeah, hopefully these two episodes will be timed near each other. But do go check out Dr. Lindsay Gold's website and podcast and Instagram. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Gold. It's been such a pleasure to have you. And thank you for letting me pick your brain about all things breast health. Oh, I thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.